this is Jamda on the go your review of the content featured in Jamda the research focused monthly journal of Amda the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society a speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them their views or any entity they represent this podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Welcome to Jamda on the Go for September 2022. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. And today we'll be discussing the September issue of JAMDA, the Journal of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Once again, I'll be speaking with JAMDA co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Phil Sloan, and associate editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. Dr. Sloan and Brown are both faculty in family medicine and geriatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome, Dr. Sloan and Brown. Thank you, Carl. So- Thank you. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, so before we start, I want to mention a couple of items of interest to our listeners. First, I think many of you may be aware that Drs. Sloan and Zimmerman will be stepping down from their remarkable stint as JAMDA's co-editors this coming December. <laughs> so Phil, you and Cheryl have truly brought JAMDA to new heights in visibility, credibility, and just plain great research that really informs our knowledge and practical understanding of post-acute and long-term care. The new co-editors have been named, and they will be well known to a lot of our listeners. Dr. Paul Katz, a longtime JAMDA associate editor and past AMDA president, and Dr. Barbara Resnick, AMDA board member, and so much more, uh, who's transitioning out of her current editor-in-chief position at Geriatric Nursing to help us out at the helm of JAMDA. This is exciting news, and Paul and Barb will clearly have big shoes to fill uh, and Phil, uh, we will miss you guys so much. Well, thank so, you. Uh, yeah. Second, I wanted to let our listeners know that we're planning a special edition of JAMDA on the go featuring Dr. Sloan, Dr. Mike Wasserman, and Dr. Christian Bergman on the topic, nursing home reform, will it improve care? You'll recall that JAMDA pu published its March 2022 issue exclusively on this topic with all of the content still available at no cost through December. So non-subscribers, please download those articles while you can. They're, they're fabulous. Uh, and Phil, you were on the NASM or National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine uh, panel that published this 500-plus page consensus publication called The Imperative to Reimagine Nursing Home Quality earlier this year uh, that Mike Wasserman and I and many others contributed to. So this will be a bit of a free-form discussion among some experts about what we might expect as current efforts at nursing home reform current uh, continue to unfold. So please be on the lookout for that podcast. Okay, enough out of me. So let's start out with an interesting article on a topic we've been seeing a lot more content on lately, trauma-informed care. The new guidance to surveyors on this just became effective on October 1st, and many of our listeners will no doubt have an interest in improving their processes for trauma-informed care in their organizations. Uh, Dr. Brown, what can you tell us about this article? Yeah, I think um, really interesting, really interesting work here. Um, 
comes as no surprise, and I think we can all attest to this, but major life changes can certainly trigger a traumatic stress response in us all. In older adults, this can lead to symptoms related to that stress. And certainly moving into a nursing home creates that sense of stress. In 2019, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services released the requirement without any specific guidance for trauma-informed care as part of a person-centered care in long-term care. So in this observational cross-sectional study of 722 new admissions at one nursing home, which is located in Metro Atlanta, was done over a period of about 18 months. The team developed a quote, trauma, end quote, framework for trauma-informed care screening based on substance abuse and mental health services administration resources. The admissions nurse conducted trauma-informed care screening within 48 hours of each new admission, including reported trauma and necessary modifications to care plans. Of those slightly more than 700 new admissions, 45 of the individuals, which is about 6%, indicated experiencing trauma in their lifetime. There was no significant association between Black or non-white in experiencing trauma, but there was a significant association with being female and experiencing trauma. Only men reported child physical abuse and war trauma, and only women reported adult sexual assault, child sexual assault, adult domestic violence, school or community violence, adult non intimate partner violence and other traumas. There was a small yet significant negative association of age and trauma. The most reported trauma care category was medical trauma, interestingly, including COVID-related trauma. More than half requested spiritual intervention and only two requested medical intervention with medication as initial interventions. The work done here suggests that knowing the patient and their trauma history really can allow the admissions nurse and interdisciplinary care team to modify the person-centered care plan to best meet the patient's needs. These results also emphasize the need for using universal trauma precautions in all interactions. Yeah, wow, so that uh, that's a lot. And uh, interesting that medical trauma was so high on the list, or maybe not that, maybe not that surprising. Uh, considering what our system does to people, especially uh, in the ICU and whatnot. But that does seem like a good idea to have an instrument for new admissions to screen for significant trauma histories. Uh, I also, that high prevalence of requests for spiritual intervention is interesting and makes a lot of sense. I, you know, I think we have a tendency to wanna to throw medication at people and um, even in geriatrics. Uh, so. Um, I, I do think a lot of nursing homes in the U.S. may have somewhat limited access to chaplains or spiritual care counselors, and this may be something we should try to remedy. Uh, Phil, Mallory, additional thoughts? Well, yes, I do have some additional thoughts about it. Um, I wrote an editorial about this. You know, when I first started to read it, I was, I was pretty skeptical about the idea of asking nursing home admissions about their life. And, you know, the concept of dragging up things that may have happened much earlier in their lives. And, you know, are you really going to be able to help with it? But when you go into the article and see how they asked the question, it was done, you know, in a very um, sensitive way where they basically asked, is there something you want to talk about? Something that's really on your mind. And so that's why, I mean, you, you know that more than 6.2% of people, if you really dug into it, have had 
adult trauma, but these are things that people, you know, were enough on their mind that, you know, with a very kind of um, low key question, they brought it up. And so I think it's worth looking at how they asked it because um, I think it's a good model. Hmm. Mallory, anything to add? I don't have anything else right now. All right. Well, so uh, continuing on the topic of individualized care, our next paper describes a rather fascinating study in which a nursing home sought to better implement person-centered care, uh, always a lofty goal and one that we all aspire to. So, Phil, I understand that this focuses on not just obtaining resident preferences, which most facilities already do, at least, you know, as far as the MDS and so on, but a series of additional steps on top of that. So please tell us about that. Well, the paper is entitled Applying Agile Methodology to Re-Engineer the Delivery of Person-Centered Care in a Nursing Home, a case study. Right. What's to not like about agility, right? <laughs> I don't know. Too many big words. Uh, but in fact, in, in it, and there's a lot of kind of science in it. The authors report how over five years in one nursing facility, with guidance from academic leaders in person-centered care, they developed and implemented a formal system for assessing resident preferences, integrating the preferences into care, and tracking the delivery of preference-based preference care throughout a care facility. I think there are some, some learning points from this, at least they were for me. In their work, they incorporated a number of evidence-based management principles. They started by noting that other than a limited section of the MDS, providers are on their own in assessing reference preferences, I mean, resident preferences. So they expanded the MDS using an evidence-based preference assessment called the Preferences for Everyday Living Inventory Nursing Home Version. This asks additional questions when a resident reports a preference to gain insight on how best to honor the preference. They have recreation therapists do the assessments and each receive a couple hours of training on how to do it. As one example of why assessment beyond the MDS is important, they pointed out that a resident might indicate a preference for being around animals, but might be terrified of dogs and love, you know, cats or rabbits or some other animal. Therefore, mm -hmm. a one size fits all pet therapy assessment and program would not work for all residents. Mm -hmm. Then to prioritize the preferences and plan sequences of delivering them, they use this um, evidence-based method called agile must, should, could, and would or won't method which is part of a management system called the dynamic system development method. And I think, you know, what this points out is there's a lot of stuff out there in the management literature about how to make things work. Some of which is probably adaptable for the nursing home industry. It's just a matter of finding it. So to help staff engage in this new process, they sought to create small victories at each developmental stage of the process, which is part of an established best practice approach to system development and implementation. So, then they would follow up this planning with having the staff track whether and if so, how often residents attended activities that were aligned with their preferences. And it's probably the best thing of all, they talked with residents who were not attending activities and sought to determine if their preferences were being met and if not, you know, how to help them. You know, and the reason I say this is important is because I think, you know, in my experience, um, it's easy to include the residents who readily join in and to exclude a significant portion of the residents. You know, we've done observations during kind of activity times, and we've noted that residents with cognitive impairment are often reached far less often by activity programs. 
And the same for people who are introverts or have depression. And so there are some people who get a lot of activity um, engagement and others who without a systematic method won't really get much um, out of the activity program. Yes. So yeah, I found the program especially worth reading because it includes examples of the forms they use for assessment, tracking, and reporting resident satisfaction with different activities. Now there's a weakness in the paper as well. They didn't show us before and after satisfaction and engagement data, possibly because it was more of a QI program and it progressed over several years. I still would have liked to see that data. But with that as a caveat, I do think this thoughtful approach to activity planning and implementation is worth looking at. As we know, quality of life is so important in long-term care. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot, uh, this sort of whole field of implementation science that I think uh, we could we could really uh, take some of that and apply it in our care setting. And this sounds like a great idea. I, I share that concern that the generic items on the MDS about, you know, what's important, you know, their preferences and so on, may miss some real opportunities to engage some of our residents. And I think it is already a best practice to have activities or recreation professionals implement some additional layers of inquiry with our residents as they've done here. And I like the fact that they share their sort of work product here. And maybe some of our readers will get a chance to try, you know, what sounds like really turnkey tools that they can pull from this paper or tweak them to their own facility and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, any other remarks on that and now a word from our sponsor looking for a safe space to talk about controversial issues that affect your residents and staff look no further than amda's edge 22 virtual symposium on friday october 28th topics include the call for nursing home reform that has been highlighted in a recent report from the national academies of science the intersection of diversity, equity, and inclusion. When does gradual dose reduction do more harm to a patient than good? And the ethical and legal aspects of medical error in post-acute and long-term care. The symposium will conclude with divergence at edge, an opportunity for presenters and participants to debate controversial topics such as legalizing medical marijuana, cardiac medications in older adults, and COVID isolation. Access the complete program details and register at paltc.org slash edge. That's paltc.org slash edge. We hope to see you there. And now back to our podcast. Okay. Well, so next paper uh, has to do with care transitions from skilled nursing facilities to lower levels of care, uh, both home and to assisted or residential care specifically for persons with dementia. Uh, and there's a lot of literature on care transitions and I always welcome anything that can uh, help improve our processes as far as that goes. So Mallory, what did we learn from this paper? Yeah, Carl, we, I mean, we all know transitions are hard. They're hard on all of us throughout our entire lives. Um, and, and certainly much has been done to improve the transitions process from the hospital to the short-term nursing facility to home over the span of my career. Um, and we've been working really hard on this. When you add in the complexity of being a person living with dementia and the transitions complexity is, is certainly amplified. 
This study really looked to describe unique care needs of people with dementia and their caregivers, um, particularly during these transitions from skilled nursing facilities back to home. The authors conducted a qualitative study using focus groups, semi-structured interviews, and descriptive qualitative analysis. Four short-term nursing facilities in one state were included in which the staff had experience using a standardized transitional care protocol. The sample included 22 short-term nursing facility staff, four home health nurses, 10 older adults living with dementia, and their 10 family caregivers, of whom 39 participated in focus groups and or interviews. Data collection included four focus groups with short-term nursing facility staff and semi-structured interviews with the home health nurses, short-term nursing facility staff, the persons with dementia, and their family caregivers. Standardized focus group and interview guides were used to elicit participant perceptions of that transition of care. The study found um, that the participants described four unique care needs that came, came up. First was persons with dementia and their caregivers may not be ready to fully engage in dementia care planning while in the short-term nursing facility. Second, caregivers are not often prepared to manage dementia symptoms at home. Third, short-term nursing facility staff have difficulty connecting persons with dementia and caregivers to community supports. And lastly, caregivers receive little support to address their own needs. The authors acknowledge that further research is needed for several reasons. One is to confirm these findings in larger, more diverse samples. So again, this was um, four short-term nursing facilities in one state. And second, more research is needed to adapt and test interventions to support successful community discharge of the person living with dementia and their caregivers. Yeah, well, for me, the biggest message here is that residents may be sent home from our facilities without adequate referrals to community supports, mm -hmm. uh, especially because it's commonplace uh, for patients with dementia who are coming off an acute hospital stay, then a post-acute rehab stint in a SNF, uh, that they have not made it back to their previous baseline and often never will be, right, both cognitively and sometimes also functionally. Uh, and families may have an unrealistic idea that things are going to be back to normal as soon as they get mom home or something. So we need to do a better job, I think, of preparing family caregivers for what's in store. On the other hand, the article suggests that sometimes they aren't really ready for that. So, um, and people certainly do go home or to a lower level of care, and then we come to find out that's not a, a viable um, care setting, but people sometimes insist on it. And uh, you know, they have a right to try that. Uh, other comments on this piece? You know, you know I, I like this because there's been so much about the hospital to nursing home transitions and hospital to home transitions. And there's a lot of really good stuff about that. This is pushing that field to look at the nursing home to home transition. And we have so much post-hospital care going on in you know, post-acute settings. Um, this highlights an area of need. And so... I agree. It's it's innovative in that way. Yeah, yeah. I think most of the most of the literature I've seen, it's really focused on making sure that when a resident is discharged from a, a SNF rehab stay, that they see their community PCP within you know seven days or something, and that uh, that's kind of a no brainer, right? But uh, yeah. anyway, great article. Um, 
So now let's move to a different topic, our last one of the day, uh, also a topic that nursing home providers confront every once in a while at least, uh, and that is what does it mean and what should we think and do when a nursing home resident without any history of a seizure disorder uh, has a first-time seizure? So Phil, tell us uh, what this paper on new onset seizures in this month's gem to have to say about it. Well, Carl, it's a longitudinal study of 3.6 million people admitted in, to U.S. Wow. nursing homes. So, you know, they use public data, which has some limitations. Uh, these are also old data, 15 years or so old. But personally, I see no reason why the findings wouldn't apply today. Right. But there is a problem with this study, which is they don't provide the diagnosis for the seizure because that wasn't in the data set. Only the underlying conditions in which the seizures arose. So though the results are helpful, I would have rather had the specific diagnosis. Hmm. Um, and it's probably in some other data set, you know, uh, or uh, whatever. Um, given these caveats, here are my main take-home messages from the study. The study tells that new seizures occur annually in between two and four percent of nursing home residents, and that they become less common the longer someone is in the nursing home. This means that post-acute patients are at the highest risk, no doubt because they have a higher prevalence of acute and evolving conditions. Mm -hmm. It also tells me that having a brain tumor places a patient at especially high risk of having new seizures. Other strong risk factors are a history of a head injury or a stroke and scarring from brain injury from either of these um, causes can often lead to sequelae of one or more seizures, most likely due to scar formation and scar maturation. In addition, um, we need to consider whether a new stroke could be presenting with the seizure, particularly in a patient with risk factors for stroke. Therefore, when a patient has a new seizure, the first thing to consider is whether they have a known brain tumor, recent head injury, or stroke. If not, then consider, based on the clinical picture, whether you suspect an acute stroke or whether a new seizure is likely because it's a sequelae from a stroke or stroke-related condition or head injury. So a reasonable approach to the new stroke to me would be, if the person has a known brain tumor, just proceed as though that's the cause. If not, you probably have to send them to the ED, obtain a CT scan to identify the cause. And as all the risk factors we've talked about bring a significant risk of recurrence, you know, I think we would wanna start the person on long-term anticonvulsants off the bat and um, continue them at least six months even without a second seizure. Yeah, well, that's uh, it's an interesting study, and uh, you know, I'd say that that seems like a reasonable approach. I'd say, uh, you know, in my career, I've seen this a few times, and um, obviously, um, you know, the push for somebody with a first-time seizure is just to call nine one one and have them checked in the emergency department, uh, depending on the goals of care and so on. Obviously, if it's someone on hospice or something, uh, that wouldn't be appropriate. But what I've heard from my neurologist colleagues is also that the older we get, the lower our seizure threshold. So, you know, tapering and discontinuing anticonvulsants, as much as we do like to deprescribe, uh, needs to be judged. You should, should be judged. Okay, sorry, Victor. Let me, let me do that again. What I've heard from my neurologist colleagues is also that the older we get, the lower our seizure threshold. So tapering and discontinuing anticonvulsants, as much as we do like to deprescribe, should be done judiciously and with fully informed consent from the resident or family. Uh, Phil, Mallory, any last comments or wisdom? 
I'm much more inclined to reduce the dose, but not necessarily um, be eager to stop. Completely yeah. agree. Yeah, yeah. Well, great. So that's going to wrap it up for this Jamda on the Go podcast. Um, please be on the lookout for our special edition that should be coming out in the next month or so. Um, and under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Phil Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care geriatrics and beyond. Please take a look at this September 2022 issue that we've just been discussing. Dr. Sloan and Brown, thanks so much for spending your time with JAMDA on the go. Thank you, Carl. Thanks, references, Sorry. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. That's J-A-M-D-A. -A. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Jamda on the Go. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.